There are two readings, so the first one's from 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verses 6 to 16. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for they had, sorry, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spiritual words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And the second reading is from Psalm 119, 9 to 24. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in follow, following your statutes as one rejoice in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are accursed, those who stray from your commands. Remove from me their scorn and contempt, for, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight, they are my counsellors. Thank you, Janine. Have a lovely time this morning, six to eight. Everyone else, keep your Bibles open pretty much wherever you want because we're going to be jumping around. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you speak to us in your word, the Holy Bible. Pray that this morning, as we consider the person work of God, the Spirit, that you will enable us uh, to learn to set aside hindrances and distractions and to live lives uh, that are pleasing to you through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, are we missing out 
on a vital ministry of God the Spirit among us. Many years ago, a then world-renowned visiting preacher came and stood in the pulpit of St Andrew's Cathedral, right in the heart of the city, and accused Anglicans within the Sydney Diocese of resisting the supernatural ministry of God the Holy Spirit on account of our hyper-focus on the Bible. He said that our Trinity was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. And he called us to repent of our ignorance of the work of the Holy Spirit. I remember many years ago speaking with a young lady who was highly recommending the church that she'd started attending. And she did so by saying, and I quote, Our church is awesome. It's an Anglican church, but we also have the Holy Spirit. Says a lot for all the other Anglican churches, I suppose. <laughs> In a similar vein, I remember once being chastised by someone for placing too much importance on the ministry of the word, apparently over and above that of the Holy Spirit. And this person said to me, and somewhat patronizingly, Ben, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I'm not sure this person appreciated the irony that they were quoting directly from the Bible as they said that. It's 2 Corinthians uh, 3 verse 6. But I get it. I actually really do get it. I know what it is. Personally, I know what it is to secretly worry that perhaps I'm missing out on some vital element of what Jesus anticipated as the normal Christian life. Maybe God intended that the Bible primarily addresses my mind, but that the Spirit somehow addresses my emotions, and perhaps I'm really emotionally stunted, as I know men can sometimes be, and such that my Christian experience is kind of boring and cerebral instead of vibrant and authentic. And so I have been tempted, and I suspect I'm not the only one, to wonder, is there something missing? Are we missing out on the vital ministry of God the Holy Spirit among us? I want us to hold that thought today as we come to look carefully now at what Jesus himself, along with his appointed ambassadors, taught about the relationship between God the Holy Spirit and the work of Revelation. If you remember from two weeks ago, we looked at the work of the Spirit regarding salvation. Next week, we'll look at the work of the Spirit regarding sanctification. But today, in the second of our three-part series on the person work of God the Holy Spirit, we're looking at his work in regards to revelation. Uh, revelation being God communicating stuff that only he knows, revealing things, revealing truth. If you're a note taker, we're now at point one on your outline where we'll consider how the coming of the Spirit transformed the apostles. How the coming of the Spirit transformed the apostles. The Apostle John wrote down a whole stack of teaching that Jesus gave during the Last Supper uh, in John chapters 13 through 16 in, in what's famously now become known as uh, the Upper Room Discourse. In fact, I think it even goes into chapter 17. But John 13 through 16, the Upper Room Discourse, that happens to be the biggest single section of the Bible that teaches us about the person and work of God the Holy Spirit. And the major focus on the Spirit's work in this long section of teaching, according to Jesus himself, is that the Spirit will enable the apostles to boldly bear witness to the truth of God's revelation. The Spirit will enable the apostles to boldly bear witness to the truth of God's revelation. You see it, first of all, uh, I'll, I'll skip through the, the, the three chapters. John 14, 
where Jesus says to his apostles, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What will God the Spirit do for the apostles? Well, he'll continue Jesus' teaching ministry, the ministry of the word, reminding them of all that Jesus had said. Again, the next chapter from John 15, verse 26, Jesus says, When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So again, according to Jesus himself, what will the Spirit do for these apostles? He will testify about Jesus. And the apostles are to engage in that same ministry. They are to follow the Spirit's leading, that is, by testifying about Jesus as the Spirit does. They don't testify about the ministry and the work of God the Holy Spirit. They testify about Jesus, which is exactly what the Spirit himself happens to be doing. And uh, I'm delighted, and I'm sure you are too, to say that the testimony about Jesus that the apostles gave eventually was written down. We call them the Gospels and, frankly, by extension, pretty much the rest of the New Testament. The next chapter, John 16, again, Jesus says, I have much more to say to you, to you apostles, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it's from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. Speaking, teaching, reminding, testifying, making known. It's all about revelation, God's communicating of truth to his people. After Jesus left his apostles and, you know, returned to the Father... He did send that great advocate. He poured out the Holy Spirit on his apostles on the day of Pentecost. And that resulted in a really obvious transformation for the apostles. See, before the Spirit came, they were cowering and confused, hiding in Jerusalem somewhere in some upstairs room. But after the Spirit came upon them, we see things like, Peter and John standing up in front of the learned Jewish religious leaders. And what do you know? Boldly testifying to the truth of God's revelation in Christ. Uh, here's where you, you see it really starkly. The fourth chapter of Acts. I'll read the lot. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, because just a bit of context, they'd healed a lame man, verse 10, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit who manifests himself in a... Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, then know this, all you people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man now stands before you healed. Jesus is... You get, the, you get the picture? Isn't it incredible? This man healed. Jesus. Yeah, this man healed. Let me tell you about Jesus. <laughs> That's the kind of vibe. From verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And here's the really striking observation. 
that uh, Luke saw fit to draw our attention to. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It wasn't the healing of the lame man that astonished the Jewish religious leaders, miraculous as it was. The guy was like 40 years old or something. God had long worked through his people in supernatural ways. The thing that astonished them about Peter and John is that they shouldn't have been able to speak and testify the way they did. Jesus must somehow have really taught them well in a relatively short period of time. See, if only they knew that God the Spirit is the great revealer of truth, the truth God gave in his word, for they quoted the scripture, and fulfilled in the personal work of Jesus, who continued his word ministry by the Spirit through the apostles. And just as Jesus himself got rejected by the world, by and large, well, so too the word ministry that he continued in his people by his Spirit is something that this world, in its so-called wisdom, can never arrive at, can never work out, can never apprehend. In fact, it's only because God the Holy Spirit indwells believers that, point two on your outline, we can know and can indeed even have the mind of Christ. One of the worst churches in the New Testament was the church in Corinth who were so enamoured with this world's notion of power and impressiveness. The Apostle Paul had to rebuke them by pointing out that being obsessed with visually spectacular manifestations of the Spirit's work or with impressive displays of worldly learning, therefore status, are not the things that make for truly spiritual people. He wrote in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But, by way of contrast, we preach. And what do we preach? Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's the real supernatural power. There's the real wisdom the foolish and unimpressive message of a crucified, despised king. No one would expect it. But that's what spirit-led people will gravitate towards. On our own, we could never have embraced such an unimpressive truth. So how on earth did we come to know this secret to true spirituality? Well, of course, it's because one of the big roles of the Holy Spirit is doing the work of revelation. He reveals God's truth to us and he does it so comprehensively that we can now be considered as those who have the very mind of Christ. Uh, sometimes, you know, you get asked in, in, in questions, questionnaires, like we had them at the weekend away, you know, what's something about the Christian faith that you really love? I think um, having the mind of Christ, the way I say it is knowing God means you see reality for what it, what, what it is. I think it's my favourite thing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, 
as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who are really intelligent and work stuff out, no, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Notice again that as Paul teaches us about God's secret wisdom, it includes quoting from the scriptures, and you'd be right to start wondering if the spirit somehow lights up God's word so that we can understand the deep secrets of God. And if you did wonder that, it would be confirmed in the next part of what Paul says. Paul continues, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit, capital S, of God. Now, this is all logical and easy enough, this little bit. You do not have access to my mind, or as the Bible would say, little s spirit. And that's probably a really good thing, because for all you know, my mind is just, you know, there's some little monkey in there clanging cymbals or whatever, right? That's why you don't know if that's going on or not. And I, in similar fashion, do not have access to your mind, which again is really good, because otherwise I don't know if you'd started drifting already and were wondering how long this sermon's going to be, except I've just brought you back because you're thinking, oh, that's Doc Brown from Back to the Future. That's so cool. Anyway, yeah, I've got you. But even more obvious than both those things, none of us have access to God's mind. What a preposterous idea that you could access the mind of God. But the Holy Spirit, who is God Almighty, well, he, of course, has complete access to the mind of God. He searches even the deep things of God. And guess what? That same spirit indwells us such that we now have access to the very mind of God, not for one another, but to God. That's what Paul says. Look from verse 12. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. In other words, they see everything correctly. But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. In other words, they don't fit in with a scheme of our world. For, and he quotes scripture again, who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? And that's a rhetorical question that expects a negative answer. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one, obviously. And that's why Paul drops the most awesome bomb at the end of that section. But, contrary to what you would expect, yeah, we do have the mind of Christ because of the indwelling spirit. Because God the Holy Spirit indwells people, and it's all people who declare Jesus as Lord, if you identify Jesus as your Lord, this means you, in his extraordinary kindness, God has given you access to his mind. You have the mind of Christ. Now, being the thoughts of God that they are, they are, of course, far too lofty and beyond what we could naturally comprehend. And yet Paul tells us that true spiritual realities can be expressed. And God has expressed them, of course, in words. 
That makes sense. God is a speaking God. Words are the way that God's spiritual revelation is expressed. So here's a, a rough diagram, me attempting to be better at, at, uh, at diagrams than I am. Here's a rough diagram of how I think this all works. After dying to pay for all our sin, your sin and mine, uh, and rising to new life to show that he's the king, Jesus ascended to God's throne in heaven. From there, he poured out his spirit on the apostles initially, enabling them to continue his teaching ministry and giving them access to his mind. Those apostles and others recorded their witness and testimony and the teaching that accords with sound doctrine. We call it the Bible, the New Testament. So now, when the Spirit indwells people, making them followers of Jesus and therefore part of his church, he gives them the same mind and bears the same testimony such that we now recognise his revelation in what has been written. As we read those spirit-taught words, we can literally know the author's intent because we also have the mind of Christ. This is why Paul, and incidentally also the Apostle John, would eventually go on to teach us that the scriptures, point three on your outline, are now what thoroughly equip us for truly spiritual life. John, who was there in that upper room discourse in the Last Supper, would later write to a struggling church. He'd write to assure a group of struggling Christians that despite all the false teachers around them who were moving on to new revelation, who were running ahead, that they, the church, because they stuck with the teaching of the apostles, were the legitimate true body of Christ. But how he teaches them that is rather strange and intriguing. He says to them, 1 John 2.20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and no lie comes from the truth. And a little bit, a little bit later on that same chapter, As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, all things, and that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it has taught you, remain in him. It's in the very part of the letter where John encourages his readers to hold firm to the teaching of the apostles. That's the context for this bit. But he points out that the anointing of the Spirit, and remember anointing just means covering, right? You know, receiving the, the indwelling Spirit, that that is the means by which they'll remain in the truth of what the apostles have passed on. So there must be a sense in which the revelation given by the Spirit is complete, for the application is not moving on to a greater revelation, but remaining in Christ who dwells with his church by his Spirit. What is the sum total? of this revelation, such that Christians don't require anything further? Well, of course, it's what we now have in, in the closed canon of Scripture. Hence, we come to the last of the Bible passages that I want us to consider regarding the Spirit's work in Revelation, namely 2 Timothy 3, 16 
and 17. And for some of us, I know this might be a memory verse. To Timothy, it was written late in Paul's life, from what we can work out. It's the letter in which he speaks about having run the race and having fought the good fight and now looking forward to the crown of righteousness that he's soon to, uh, to be rewarded with by Jesus. In his earlier letter, namely 1 Timothy, Paul quotes something that Jesus said and referred to it as Scripture in just the same way that he'd speak about the law of Moses. Here it is, 1 Timothy 5.18. Did I put it there? Yes, I did. This is 1 Timothy. Paul says, for Scripture says, and he's got two things that Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. That comes from Deuteronomy. And here's what else the Scripture says, the worker deserves his wages. But you won't find that in Paul's Old Testament in the Scriptures. They're words that Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Luke. So, When Paul comes to that well-known statement in 2 Timothy 3.16, it would actually be reasonable to apply it to, I think, the entirety of God's now-written revelation. Paul says, of course, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And as you can see on the slide there, uh, I'm committing the sin again. It was one of the lecturers at college said, uh, preachers who bring up Greek during their sermons have a special room in hell reserved for them. But I've already done it already, so I might as well keep, you know, (laughs) what's the point? Um, I've got a Greek word there. It's the word that we translate uh, God-breathed, and it's actually a compound word, two words put together, of God and spirit. And you remember from two weeks ago, spirit The same word can mean wind or breath, right? See, just as Jesus breathed out on his apostles, literally, he did at the end of John's Gospel, and said, receive my spirit, well, so it is with all scripture. God has expired, literally, breathed out the words, spirited out the words, if I can put it like that. The words of the scripture are the words of the spirit, the revelation of God expressed in spiritual words. And those words are not partially helpful for the Christian life. They enable us to be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The scriptures illuminated by the Spirit are absolutely all that we need for salvation and the life of godliness. We cannot possibly be missing out on any of the Spirit's ministry, for we have the entirety of his sufficient revelation in the Spirit-filled words of the Bible. The more truly spiritual you want your life to be, the more Christianly you want to live, if I can put it like that, well, then the more reading and understanding and, frankly, rejoicing in the Scriptures you'll be invested in. You could go and find a method for spiritual living that, downplays the importance of what God has revealed in his word, perhaps some exciting, vibrant, so-called worship music with intense singing and stuff, or in which the Spirit is then said to come upon us and supposedly recharge us to reach some new level of spiritual success. 
You could go and find a method that incorporates breathing and Eastern meditation practices along with reciting biblical mantras in the hope that it somehow moulds your heart to become more of what God wants it to be. Or you could recognise that you already have the mind of Christ. That the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon you and me means that we're not missing out on anything. You can simply read and grow in your understanding of God's word at your own pace, both individually and in fellowship with one another. In fact, I was really heartened to hear Jono say that he really missed hanging out with us. Um, That's something. There's, There's real spirituality gathering with people to not miss out on what the Spirit is doing as the Word is read and taught. Let other people demand signs. Let other people seek worldly power and status. But for us, let's be content with the foolish message of Christ crucified and the revelation of truth that God has put into words, Spirit-filled words, in Scripture. That's the mindset, by the way, of the Spirit-filled psalmist who wrote Psalm 119. Listen again to how joyful this guy is to indulge in God's revelation expressed in words. From verse 13, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. In other words, I think he's memorizing them. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight, again, delight, rejoice. In your decrees, I will not neglect your word. Or again, from the same psalm, a few verses on, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Guess what? What that guy was looking forward to, we have. Open my eyes, illuminate the word. Or verse 24, your statutes again are my delight. They are my counselors. You want to find supernatural joy in the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit? Stick your head in the Bible. Finally, what then of revelation beyond what the Spirit has given us in Scripture? Well, of course, God's capable of such things. He's capable of anything, really. There's absolutely no promise that he'll operate in that way. Time and time again, the Scriptures make it clear that one of the great dangers we face is the temptation to think that we're missing out on something really good. And that goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? It's what Satan did with Eve, you know. God knows you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. If you see, he's holding back. You're missing out on something. Do this other thing. It's what some of the early Jewish Christians did to the Gentiles, implying that those Gentiles, they're not really experiencing the full measure of Christ because they, they don't practice circumcision. They haven't embraced the law of Moses. Always FOMO, fear of missing out, can be a powerful thing and the Bible keeps warning us against it. There will always be those who go on in great detail about what they have seen on account of their unspiritual minds that are puffed up with idle notions. We must not let them disqualify us, Colossians 2. Probably my favourite bit of teaching regarding extra-biblical revelation comes from the great Puritan John Owen. It's so simple and so memorable and so profound. He says, if private revelations agree with Scripture, they are needless. If they disagree, they're false. Let's pray. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you give us absolutely all we need in your word and that you indwell us by your Holy Spirit who reveals 
true spiritual truths in spirit-filled words and enables us to learn and grow in our knowledge of you. Thank you, Father, for that powerful work of the Spirit among us. We, we pray that you'd help all of us to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit that is at work among us. That we will delight in your word, that we will delight in your law, that we will rejoice in your precepts, that we will stick our heads in the Bibles unashamedly, knowing that that's the real ministry of the Spirit at work within and among us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.